Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we're going to be curious, mindful, and impeccable as we uncover and embrace why your words matter. So many times we deliver a word never knowing the impact, where it goes, how it lands, and what takes root. Other times, our words never make it to the surface but are cut off by our brain's controlling intervention, prompted by doubt or fear. On this journey of self-discovery, it's important to dig in and learn as much as we can about ourselves, what makes us tick, and what can we do to maximize our impact. You have some real power here, the power of the tongue. Let's not wield it lightly. I was getting ready to speak the other day, and the host of the event was getting the microphone ready, and she used the word subtle when referring to amplification. It struck me as funny because that's never been a word to describe me. Subtle. I've never been told to speak up, either in terms of volume or interjection. I have been told, however, to lower my voice and let someone else have a turn. (laughs) I've never found it hard to find my voice. But looking back, I may have been naive to the power of my words. Let's pay attention to the positive power and the negative so that we can have a clearer picture. Over at goop.com, I found the scary power of negative words. Words have power. Their meaning crystallizes perceptions that shape our beliefs, drive our behavior, and ultimately create our world. Their power arises from our emotional responses when we read, speak, or hear them. Just say the word fire while barbecuing or in the workplace or in a crowded theater and you'll get three completely different but powerful emotions and energetic reactions. Quantum physics long ago determined that physical matter doesn't really exist, that everything is just energy in different states of vibration. Nobel Peace Prize winner physicist Werner Heisenberg once stated, Atoms, or elementary particles themselves, are not real. They form a world of potentialities or possibilities rather than one of things or facts. This energy vibrates at an infinite number of subtle frequencies that cause it to appear as all the different creations we see in our world. There has been a great deal of research in recent years as to whether the universe we live in is actually a holographic experience, and it seems that this is very close to the truth. And so it seems life is more of an energy flow than a collection of solid things. What that means for us is that if we stay conscious of the energy we contain based on the emotions we feel, we can make deliberate choices that alter our frequency and create the realities we desire. If we're feeling down about something, we can choose to reframe the situation and raise our spirits. With a renewed perspective and a higher, more positive energetic vibration, we stand a much better chance of bringing good into our lives rather than bitterly repeating old mistakes. 
Words are extremely powerful tools that we can use to uplift our personal energy and improve our lives, though we're often not conscious of the words we speak, read, and expose ourselves to. Yes, even the words of others can easily affect our personal vibration. Spend a few minutes with a chronic complainer who uses all sorts of negative terms and you'll feel your personal energy bottom out. Words have great power, so choose them and your friends wisely. Japanese scientist Masaru Emoto performed some of the most fascinating experiments on the effects that words have on energy in the 1990s. When frozen, water that's free from all impurities will form beautiful ice crystals that look exactly like snowflakes under a microscope. Water that's polluted or has additives like fluoride will freeze without forming crystals. In this experiment, Emoto poured pure water into vials labeled with negative phrases like, I hate you, or fear. After 24 hours, the water was frozen and no longer crystallized under the microscope. It yielded gray, misshapen clumps instead of beautiful lace-like crystals. In contrast, Emoto placed labels that said things like, I love you, or peace, on the vials of polluted water, and after 24 hours, they produced gleaming, perfectly hexagonal crystals. Emoto's experiments prove that energy generated by positive or negative words can actually change the physical structure of an object. The results of his experiments were detailed in a series of books beginning with The Hidden Messages in Water, where you can see the astounding before and after photos of these incredible water crystals. In another experiment, Emoto tested the power of spoken words. He placed two cups of cooked rice in two separate mason jars and fixed the lids in place, labeling one jar, thank you, and the other, you fool. The jars were left in an elementary school classroom, and the students were instructed to speak the words on the labels to the corresponding jars twice a day. After 30 days, the rice in the jar that was constantly insulted had shriveled into a black, gelatinous mass. The rice in the jar that was thinked was as white and fluffy as the day it was made. This dramatic example of the power of words is also detailed in Emoto's books. How many times a day do we throw our words away? We say things like, I hate my hair. I'm so stupid. I'm such a klutz. We never think that these words bring negative energy into our vibration and affect us on a physical level, but they do. Emoto's experiments were conducted with water. Why? Because sound vibration travels through water four times faster than it does through open air. Consider the fact that your body is over 70% water, and you'll understand how quickly the vibration from negative words resonates in your cells. Ancient scriptures tell us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. As it turns out, that's not a metaphor. Of us are in the habit of using the same negative words over and over again out of habit. The problem is that the more we hear, read, or speak a word or phrase, the more power it has over us. 
This is because the brain uses repetition to learn, searching for patterns and consistency as a way to make sense of the world around us. Only after being burned a few times can we understand that fire is always hot. You may not remember the exact end date of the Civil War, but odds are you still know what 8 times 9 is because you had to repeat your multiplication tables over and over again, drilling it into your consciousness. I'm sure you've experienced having a song stuck in your head all day, and try as you might, you can't get that melody out of your head. Repetition is the most powerful tool to imprint something into our minds and keep it there. This is a particular concern when we consider a phenomenon called the illusion of truth effect. It basically proves that any statement we read, see, or speak regularly is seen as more valid than one we're exposed to only occasionally. Amazingly, it makes no difference whether the information is true or false. The only thing that matters is how often we're exposed to it. Research from the University of California at Santa Barbara clearly shows that a weak message repeated twice becomes more valid than a strong message heard only once. Even one repetition has the power to change our minds. The same goes for pictures, which are just thoughts and ideas concentrated into an image. Repetition increases our mental validation of anything we're exposed to, which is why it works so well in political propaganda. If we're not fully conscious of what we're exposing ourselves to, consistency will trump truth every time. Now, consider how many times you've falsely called yourself stupid, untalented, ugly, or anything else, and you begin to understand how your internal propaganda shapes a false self-image. So how can we turn things around? Number one, making words work. To consciously harness the power of words for your benefit, start with the ones you're using. Number two, no name-calling or self-criticism. Everyone is doing the best they can at any moment in time with the consciousness they have to work with, including you. Be kind and offer yourself the same empathy and compassion you've extended to anyone else. Number three, stop all self-deprecation. Never make your body or something you've accomplished or anything else in your life the butt of a joke. Words have power and quantum energy doesn't have a sense of humor. Number four, resist gossiping and speaking ill of others. It's impossible for your words to resonate in anyone else's body but your own. Number five, go on a negativity diet. Instead of saying that a meal was terrible, say, I've had better. You've basically said what you wanted to say without putting negative energy through your body. You even used a positive word to do it. Number six, boost the positive energy of words. Instead of saying something like you had a good time at the concert, ramp up the positive energy by saying great, terrific, or fantastic. These feel much better and generate a bigger energetic response in the body. Number seven, if you have some negative Nancys in your circle of friends, limit the time you spend with them or find better friends. Negative energy has a way of dragging everything surrounding it in, like a big black hole. Avoid it when you can. Number eight, 
Surround yourself with positive, uplifting words. Put affirmations on sticky notes around your home and office that say wonderful things about you, your family, or your goals. Wear clothes that have positive messages or phrases on them. Imagine the kind of positive energy you'll be generating for yourself when you're wearing positivity all day. As you keep doing these things, you use the power of repetition in a highly effective way for your benefit. You have the power to change your world, and using words consciously is one of the quickest ways to shift the energy you bring into your life. It's so easy to fall down the rabbit hole of negative thinking and speaking. As positive as you try to be, displeasure and frustration seep in and cause your outlook to change, even if for a moment. The idea is to catch yourself and reframe those moments. Having a positive attitude, learning to conjure self-love, and speaking life doesn't mean you won't have bad days. But what if you turn those bad days into bad moments to turn the mountain back into a molehill? One of the ways to do this is to catch yourself in the act. When you start down the hole, claw your way back to the entrance by finding the positive or accepting and moving on. Finding the positive can take some digging and a few loosely painted silver linings, but it can happen in every situation. Accepting and moving on means not sitting with bad feelings or unsolvable challenges. It's acknowledgement and then a willingness to move forward, solved or otherwise. Dr. Jack Schaefer furthers our exploration with Words Have Power, found at psychologytoday.com. Words cannot change reality, but they can change how people perceive reality. Words create filters through which people view the world around them. A single word can make the difference between liking a person and disliking that person. If a friend describes the person you're about to meet for the first time as untrustworthy, you will be predisposed to view that person as untrustworthy, regardless of the person's actual level of trustworthiness. The single word untrustworthy creates a filter or primacy effect that predisposes you to view the person you're about to meet as untrustworthy. Therefore, you will tend to view everything that person says or does as untrustworthy. Overcoming negative primacy is difficult, but not impossible. The more times you meet the untrustworthy person and don't experience instances of untrustworthiness, the more likely you are to view the untrustworthy person as trustworthy, thus overriding negative primacy. However, you are less likely to meet an untrustworthy person a second time because you perceive that person as untrustworthy, thereby reducing the probability of overcoming negative primacy. If before meeting a person for the first time, a friend tells you that the person you're about to meet is friendly, then you'll likely view the person as friendly regardless of the person's degree of friendliness. If you meet the friendly person several times and don't experience friendliness, then you will tend to excuse away the unfriendly behavior. Such excuses might include, he must be having a bad day. I must have caught her at a bad time. Or everybody has a bad day once in a while. An unfriendly person initially described as friendly 
gains an advantage from positive primacy because people tend to allow the unfriendly person multiple opportunities to demonstrate friendliness despite numerous displays of unfriendly behavior. In today's busy world, people typically don't consult multiple news sources to get a balanced view of world events. Therefore, people tend to perceive world events through the filter created by a single newspaper, television newscast, or radio report. Media has the power to influence the way in which people view world events. If a media outlet, especially a reputable one, introduces a bias into the news story, the readers or listeners will tend to view the event through the biased filter established by the media report. The filter created by the biased news report will remain in place until the readers are exposed to other, more balanced news reports. However, this is unlikely to occur because people generally don't consult multiple news sources. Dr. Schaefer says, I took advantage of the primacy effect at an early age. I was infatuated with Paula. She was the second prettiest girl I had seen since I crossed the threshold of puberty, he says. I wanted to spend time with her. I devised a plan to meet her without subjecting myself to social humiliation. Beth was Paula's closest friend. I knew if I had told Beth that I thought Paula was cute, had a sense of humor, and that I wanted to take her out on a date, the message would be conveyed to Paula in a matter of minutes. I knew Paula would be faced with two options. If she was predisposed to like me, then the next time she saw me, she would have a favorable opinion of me because she would see me as the person who liked her. If she didn't like me, then she would avoid me at all costs because she would know my intentions to ask her out on a date. The next day at school, I saw Paula walking down the hallway. Our eyes met. She smiled. I had my answer. The primacy effect predisposed her to like me before I spoke my first word. In my early days as an investigator, Dr. Schaefer says, I fell victim to the primacy effect. I interviewed a suspect who I thought kidnapped a four-year-old girl. Before talking to the suspect, I had already made up my mind that he was the kidnapper. Consequently, everything the suspect said or did, I viewed as indications of guilt, despite ample evidence to the contrary. The more pressure I put on the suspect, the more nervous he became, not because he was guilty, but because I did not believe him and he thought he would go to prison for something he didn't do. The more nervous the suspect became, the more I thought he kidnapped the young girl and the more pressure I applied. Needless to say, the interview spiraled out of control. In the end, I was embarrassed when the real kidnapper was caught. I suspect that negative primacy is at the root of many false confessions. If the word interrogation were used instead of the word interview, the likelihood increases that investigators would assume that the person being questioned is guilty. Interviewers view interrogations as adversarial and at some point prior to interrogations, they either consciously or unconsciously form the opinion that the interviewee is guilty to some degree. If this were not the case, then the interviewers would be conducting interviews, not interrogations. The interview-interrogation paradigm creates two negative primacy filters. The first negative primacy filter is that the interrogation 
will be confrontational. If interviewers go into the interrogation with the preconceived notion that the suspect will be confrontational, then the interrogation will likely become confrontational because the interviewer will tend to interpret anything the suspect says or does through the filter of confrontation. Interviewers begin interrogations with a heightened sensitivity to confrontation. Therefore, the slightest provocation by the suspect triggers responses that are more aggressive because interviewers anticipate confrontations. The same actions that interviewers perceive as aggressive during interrogations would probably be judged as less aggressive or neutral during interviews because interviewers perceive interviews as non-confrontational. The second negative filter is that interviewers will likely view the interviewees as guilty before the interrogations commence and perceive everything the interviewees says or does as support of their guilt and discontent or excuse away any evidence that does not support their preconceived notion of guilt. An alternative approach to the interview interrogation paradigm places the inquiry process on the resistance continuum. At one end of the continuum, interviewees offer information without resistance. At the other end, interviewees are reluctant to provide information or fall silent. This concept allows investigators to glide back and forth along the resistance continuum using a succession of specialized interviewing techniques to overcoming varying degrees of resistance. Interviewers need only focus on the appropriate selection of interviewing techniques to overcome resistance from witnesses and suspects alike. As the interviewee's resistance increases or decreases, the interviewer adjusts the intensity of the inquiry by selecting the suitable interviewing technique to overcome the interviewee's resistance. One way to minimize the primacy effect is to develop competing hypothesis. Developing competing hypothesis reduces the primacy effect. A competing hypothesis is an educated guess that supposes a different outcome based on the same or similar set of circumstances. For example, when I speak to someone, my initial hypothesis is that the person is telling the truth. A competing hypothesis posts that the person is lying. During the conversation, I seek evidence to support the initial hypothesis or the competing hypothesis. Rarely does all the evidence support the initial hypothesis or the competing hypothesis because Honest people often say and do things that make them look dishonest. And conversely, dishonest people often say things that make them look honest. In the end, however, the weight of the evidence should support one hypothesis over the other. So, the next time you conduct an interview, meet a new colleague, or buy a new product, think about how you came to form your opinion about the person or product. Chances are high that your opinions were formed by primacy. New employees can enhance or hurt their career opportunities depending on the first impressions they make on their employees or coworkers. The acceptance of employees who transfer from one office to the other depends on the reputation that precedes their arrival. The new brand of toothpaste you bought has to be good because three out of four dentists recommend that particular brand. Words have power, so choose them wisely. But, you know, who doesn't like a good rant? I mean, it's therapeutic, and 
such a release. Even as an encouragementologist, I rant. However, first I ask for permission. You got a minute to hear me out? Can I unload a few things that are driving me crazy? The worst thing you can do is ruin someone's good mood with your purely personal rant. But if you have a good listener who's open to helping you out every now and then, then let loose after you've gained permission. Maybe that person needs to schedule a time when they're open to listening, and that's okay. Put your rant on hold, and who knows? By the time your window of opportunity is open, your frustration has passed. Try writing it down and really getting it all out. A person can only take so much. Then, read it. And maybe even read it day two or three to see if your feelings have changed. In both cases, if you need to address the issue to move on, do it with kindness. That is something you can control. You've heard me talk about Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of The Four Agreements. Love this book and these simple yet difficult practices to life. The first agreement is to be impeccable with your word. Let's listen and learn more. There are a lot of elements of our lives we don't choose or have control over. It's a process that starts the day we are born. You don't pick your first language, you don't choose your first school, and you can't control what attitudes your parents instill in you. Parents, peers, teachers, religion, all these influences instill a set of rules in us. And as children, we have no power over them. We are rewarded when we do good and punished when we step out of line. Compound this for almost two decades and you become someone who's chasing brownie points, afraid of rejection and someone who's not questioning society's rules. The Four Agreements is a book that sold over 6 million copies, written by Don Miguel Ruiz and has spent 8 years on the New York Times bestseller list. In this book he argues that we need to break the rules that have been instilled in us and make only four agreements with ourselves to live a purposeful life. Hang on to your chairs because it's about to get a little floaty. Let's begin. The first agreement from Ruiz is immediately the most important one and also the most difficult to honor. It is so important that just with this agreement you will be able to create what he calls heaven on earth. The first agreement is to be impeccable with your word. It sounds very simple, but it's very, very powerful. Through the words you express your creative power. It is through the words that you can manifest everything. Regardless of what language you speak, your intent manifests through the word. Now the word is not just a sound or a written symbol. The word is a force. It is the power you have to express and communicate, to think and thereby to create the events in your life. The word is the most powerful tool you have as a human. It is the tool of magic. But like a sword with two edges, your word can create the most beautiful dream or your word can destroy everything around you. One edge of the word is the misuse of the word, which creates a living hell. The other edge of the sword is the impeccability of the word, which will only create beauty, love and heaven on earth. Depending on how it is used, the word can set you free or it can enslave you more than you know. By hooking our attention, the word can enter our mind and change a whole belief for better or worse. Now let's quickly see what the word impeccability means. Impeccability means without sin. 
a sin is anything that you do which goes against yourself. Everything you feel or believe or say that goes against yourself is a sin. You go against yourself when you judge or blame yourself for anything and thus committing a sin. Being without sin is exactly the opposite. When you are impeccable, you take responsibility for your action, but you do not judge or blame yourself. From this point of view, the whole concept of sin changes from something moral or religious to common sense. If I see you on the street and I call you stupid, it appears that I'm using the word against you. But really, I'm just using the word against myself, because you're going to hate me for this, and you hating me is not good for me. Therefore, if I get angry with my words, I send all that emotional poison to you. There's a good chance it's gonna come back to me. If I love myself, I will express that love in my interaction with you. And then I'm being impeccable with my word, because that action will produce a similar reaction. If I love you, you will love me. If I insult you, you will insult me. If I have gratitude for you, you will have gratitude for me. And if I'm selfish with you, you will be selfish with me. Making this agreement is difficult because we have learned to do precisely the opposite. We have learned to lie as a habit of our communication with others and more importantly, with ourselves. In this case, the power of the word is completely misused. We use the word to blame, to find guilt, to destroy. Of course, we also use it the right way, but not too often. We use the word to create hate between different races, between different people, between families and between nations. Misuse of the word is how we pull each other down and keep each other in a state of fear and doubt. There was a woman, for example, who was very intelligent and had a very good heart. She had a daughter whom she adored and loved very much. One night she came home from a very bad day at work, tired, full of emotional tension and with a terrible headache. She wanted peace and quiet, but her daughter was singing and jumping happily. The daughter, of course, was unaware of how the mother was feeling. She was in her own world, in her own dream. She felt so wonderful and she was jumping and singing louder and louder, expressing her joy and her love. At this point, the mother lost control. Angrily, she looked up at her beautiful little girl and said, Shut up! You have an ugly voice, can you just shut up? Now the truth is that the mother's tolerance for any noise was non-existent. It wasn't that the little girl's voice was ugly, but the daughter believed what her mother said. And in that moment, she made an agreement with herself. After that, she no longer sang because she believed her voice was ugly and would bother anyone who heard it. Everything changed in this little girl's life because of this new agreement. She believed she must repress her emotions in order to be accepted and loved. This girl grew up and even though she had a beautiful voice, she never sang again. If we adopt the first agreement and become impeccable with our words, any emotional poison will eventually be cleaned from our minds and from our communication in our personal relationships. When you are impeccable with your words, you feel good, you feel happy, and most importantly, you are at peace. You can transcend the dream of hell just by making the agreement to be impeccable with your words. Right now, I'm planting that seed in your mind. Whether or not the seed grows depends upon how fertile your mind is. It is up to you to make this agreement with yourself. Be impeccable with your word. According to Ruiz, this is the first agreement that you should make if you want to be free. It is very powerful. With the impeccability of the word, you can transcend the dream of fear and live a different life. You can live in heaven in the middle of thousands of people living in hell because you are immune to that hell.
Now you know you should be impeccable with your word, but what about when? Do you struggle with when you should speak up? How many of you get a thought and before you can take action and speak up, that little voice tells you not to? No one cares. Someone already said that. They can't hear you. They'll think you're stupid. That's not relevant. So you sit back and you let someone else interject or add color. Maybe your fear of speaking up even has you paralyzed when it comes to starting a conversation. So instead of suggesting a fun new topic, you sit by and nod and laugh, never really engaging. Does any of this sound familiar? What's holding you back? Alea Cooks-Campbell tells us why speaking up for yourself is important. Steps to get it right, found at betterup.com. Of all the different kinds of communication, speaking up is probably the most overlooked. That's because while most kinds of communications occur between two or more individuals, speaking up begins with a conversation with oneself. At their best, conversations with other people feel easy and there's a comfortable back and forth. However, there are times when you feel a sense of disease and a growing mismatch between what is and isn't being said. That's your first clue that it may be time to speak up. Speaking up is when you communicate publicly, assertively, and honestly for the rights and needs of yourself and others. It is at the root of all social change, including within organizations. For many of us, it's easier to advocate for others than it is to speak up for ourselves. However, when we don't speak up for ourselves, we erode our sense of self-worth. We become engaged in a cycle of rationalizing behavior that takes us further away from our values and ultimately away from the person that we want to be. At its heart, speaking up is really a conversation regarding boundaries The uncomfortable feeling that you associate with needing to say something, even if you're afraid to say it, is called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is the psychological term of the mental distress that arises when you're trying to balance two conflicting thoughts, feelings, or values. When you feel that you need to speak up, you instinctively feel that a boundary or value that you hold has been violated in some way. However, the desire to reinforce the boundary comes into conflict with another value, the desire to be accepted. This can be especially strong in close relationships or at work where the stakes are high. Our brains don't differentiate much between emotional danger and physical danger. Whether it's a saber-toothed tiger or a we-need-to-talk, our sympathetic nervous systems, the part that's responsible for the fight-or-flight response, kicks into high gear. What we're responding to is the social threat or the concern that we'll have to choose between being accepted by our peers and what we personally find unacceptable. When we stay silent in the face of that cognitive stress, however, the consequences don't just disappear. Instead of causing damage to our social standing, we simply internalize the emotional fallout. Why then? would we choose not to speak up? It's because our communication patterns, like most of what we do, are habits. If we've repeatedly had negative experiences around advocating for ourselves or social acceptance, we're less likely to feel safe speaking up. 
Here are some reasons some people feel afraid to speak up. Childhood experiences. If we were ridiculed, yelled at, or abused for speaking up as children, it can be difficult to advocate for ourselves and our needs as adults. Often, examining our relationships with our parents and siblings provides important insights into our communication styles as adults. Post-traumatic experiences when speaking up. It might be getting laughed at for getting an answer wrong or having to choose which of your parents to live with. Regardless of the stakes, if the outcome was stressful or traumatic, you may have unconsciously shut down your voice as a way to prevent further harm. Gender differences. In a recent survey of 1,100 female employees, 45% of them said that speaking up at work was difficult. Societal gender expectations play a role in this disparity. Women are socialized to be less assertive, and those who do speak up are often labeled as difficult to work with. Fear of retaliation. If your opinion contradicts that of someone important to you, you may be afraid of the repercussions of speaking up. Although it's unethical, drawing attention may result in loss of income, opportunities, comfort or status, and proving retaliation can be difficult. Concerns for what others think. Even if you don't have anything to lose per se, speaking up still isn't easy. You may fear upsetting a friendship, bringing tension into a comfortable setting, not fitting in, or being seen as a troublemaker. So when should you speak up? Speaking up is always a challenge, but chances are you'll feel worse by not speaking up when it really counts. Here are six times that you should always speak up. Number one, when you notice someone is upset. Speaking up on behalf of another person is often easier, but no less powerful. Number two, when something goes against the rules of the workplace. Culture is a critical part of a thriving workplace. Number three, when it sets a dangerous precedent. Boundary violations rarely happen in isolation, and they have an unfortunate tendency to escalate. Number four, when you have the upper hand. Whether you're in a leadership role or benefit from racial, social, or economic privilege, it's your responsibility to speak up for those who don't have the same advantage. Number five, when no one else does. We've all experienced that moment of looking around the room wondering who's going to point out the obvious or ask the unspoken question. And number six, when the little inner voice says, speak up. The more aware you are of your feelings and the feelings of others, the more difficult it becomes to stay silent when something seems off. So how do you start? Speaking up is something that you can practice and learn to be comfortable with. The key to being successful at it is managing the cognitive dissonance. Before you speak up, ask yourself, when am I most likely to need to speak up? Is there a conversation that I'm avoiding? If so, why? What am I afraid of? Before you speak up, learn the feeling. Get familiar with the physical and emotional nudge that you have something that might be difficult to say. It may be like a lump in the throat or butterflies in the stomach. 
with practice, you'll be able to interpret the uncomfortable sensation as information. Before you speak up, create a trigger phrase for yourself. We often try to manage the discomfort of not speaking up by forcing that feeling down. Instead, create a phrase that leads you towards speaking up. I had a question about that. I'm uncomfortable with that. From my perspective, you said blank. There are endless ways to interject, and the right one will depend on the situation and what's right for you. Before you speak up, know your rights and resources. If the matter is more serious, like a violation of workplace harassment, knowing your rights and the path for escalation can help you feel more secure about standing up for yourself. When you're speaking up, don't fall into the over-explaining trap. Because speaking up is uncomfortable, you may feel the need to say more than you ordinarily would or keep talking to fill the space. Don't. Keep it brief. When you're speaking up, be clear on what you want to accomplish. Are you speaking up on behalf of your own boundaries or because you sense that a colleague is uncomfortable? When you're speaking up, be compassionate to all parties, including yourself. Speaking up is a difficult thing to do. We often try to deal with the emotional discomfort by redirecting it as anger to another person. Growth isn't easy, and it's often uncomfortable. Learning to speak up for yourself, though, is always worth it. In the words of Audre Lorde, When I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I'm afraid. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, be aware of what you say, when and how. Use your words to empower, inform, and engage. Your words matter, and people, including yourself, are listening. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Somewhere through until the path was clear, that's when I found you.